Welcome to 2019. Isn't it great to have the calendar change? And how many have already, how many already written checks that said 2018 and you had to avoid them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you ever written the check? Oh. Well, I know we uh, start the new year with some thoughts about sometimes thinking about things we're going to do differently, making resolutions, uh, losing weight maybe, getting in shape, digging out of debt, maybe learning something new, uh, new language, how to cook, maybe starting a new hobby, maybe getting better at something like sewing or golf or changing a job or starting a business. Just a time of year when a lot of people are thinking about that kind of change in life. I know a few years ago, Jackie and I decided we were going to learn Spanish because our uh, granddaughters were going to a school down in D.C. where it was, uh, it was bilingual. They were learning Spanish at the same time. So for Christmas, we bought ourselves, this four years ago, uh, Rosetta Stone. We were going to learn Spanish. And uh, you may have discovered this in some of your New Year's resolutions. I'll just tell you, if you bought Rosetta Stone, you actually have to open the package to learn the language. I checked this morning. The package is still sitting in our closet. The tape is not even broken yet. So I will just say you can't sleep with that box. You have to actually open the package and stick it into your computer. So, so anyway, we've t- uh, we timed this series we're going to do and start today uh, for this new year, just because things people tend to be thinking about. And uh, maybe things you like to do better, maybe things you like to do not much of, maybe things you like to stop. So I want to spend some time early on in this series, in this message today, just kind of laying a foundation for the whole series, if you will. And if I succeed at that and you're still here when we get further along in the message, I promise we're going to open our Bibles or your apps and it'll make some sense then when we kind of lay the foundation. So just hang in there. We'll definitely get to God's Word for sure. But we're calling this series Guardrails. And let me just explain why. I did this series, uh, a series like this, about a decade ago, 11 years ago. And uh, I wanted to kind of dust it off and bring it to you uh, since most of you were not here. 11, I mean, not that you weren't alive. 11 years ago, but you weren't here 11 years ago. So, uh, first of all, guardrails make sense because we, we know what those are, right? I mean, even if you're not a driver, you've ridden in a car and you've seen guardrails, so you know what they are. Secondly, guardrails have a very specific purpose. Guardrails keep us or are designed to keep us from straying into dangerous or, or off-limits area like over, over a cliff, right? If you're driving around, you, you see guardrails all the time. You, know, you see them on the sides of the roads because sometimes they'll say, okay, the road is going to turn. People are not used to turning and so they want to go straight and they, we're going to put a guardrail there so that if they don't turn, they're going to hit the guardrail and not run into the ditch. We see them in uh, long median strips, right? Because they don't want you to you know, cross into the median strip uh, into oncoming traffic or, or they don't want incoming traffic to kind of come into your lane either. Uh, and so they're also on bridges, right? They don't, they don't really want you to go off the side of the bridge. Not that they care that much about you, but rescuing your car and getting out of the river is expensive. So they'd rather not have to do that. So they put a median, they put a guardrail up there. The third reason we're kind of dealing with guardrails, calling it guardrails, is that they are designed to kind of protect you and, and direct you. But you, you don't see, you might have noticed this, maybe you've not paid a lot of attention to guardrails, but you don't happen to see guardrails in the middle of ditches, right? They're not in the middle of ditches. They're usually up on the road, along the road, before you get to the ditch. And they're designed to keep you from going into the ditch. Guardrail in the middle of the ditch doesn't really help you that much. So if the guardrail wasn't there, you, you might have gone into the ditch, but hitting the guardrail prevents you from going into the ditch. Uh, the fourth thing about guardrails is this. 
They're designed to minimize damage. And maybe you've experienced this in your personal lives. The damage done when you hit a guardrail can be significant. No question about that. But it's typically minor compared to the damage that would have resulted had you not had a guardrail and just run headlong into the ditch or headlong off the bridge or cliff or headlong into oncoming traffic, right? On the screen is an SUV that uh, moved along quite nicely, except that nobody in the car had a seatbelt on. And the 70-year-old who was untethered reached up and grabbed the steering wheel and yanked it and pulled it right into the ditch. The sister in the back seat was ejected from the car. uh, But guess what? All of them lived, no serious damage, and it would have been far worse had there not been a guardrail there to kind of stop the momentum, right? Guardrails can minimize damage, but it doesn't, they don't cure stupid, right? I mean, if you stu- seatbelts are still wise things to have, right? So, so you might be thinking at this point, okay, Dwayne, thank you so much for this incredible and intriguing and riveting PSA on guardrails. I really do have a newfound appreciation for them. I, di- I didn't really... Th- think about guardrails that much before this morning, but I really do appreciate them. That said, why are we talking about them here at church? Here's the point. Besides the roadways and the byways and the highways, they're not the only places we need guardrails. If we were perfectly honest, and I know that's asking a lot of people going to church, right? If we were perfectly honest right? Most of us would agree that guardrails could have, might have, protected us from some of our greatest regrets. If we'd had some financial guardrails, some moral guardrails, some relational guardrails, some professional guardrails, maybe the regrets we have wouldn't have existed. And what this means is that it's possible then that future regrets that we haven't stumbled into yet might, might actually be avoided if we place some personal guardrails in our lives. So for the next four weeks, this week and four more, we're going to talk about guardrails. But we've got a huge roadblock to navigate, and it's this. Our culture hates guardrails. In fact, our culture doesn't encourage really any kind of rules that uh, hard and fast rules, right? Firm guidelines. We we hate it. We're 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 content in our culture with just painted lines, suggestions, recommendations. But you might have noticed if you run off the road, painted line doesn't stop you, does it? It doesn't slow you down. In other words, but our culture is content with some suggestions, some warnings, and those don't really work to keep you from danger. But should you begin to establish guardrails for your lives and people find out about those? Even people who are close to you and actually care about you and love you, you might find they're not necessarily going to encourage you all that much because our culture in general hates guardrails. I was teaching a Financial Peace University class to help people who are interested in getting out of debt. And uh, one couple had a massive credit card debt uh, a mortgage that they really couldn't afford, car payments, uh, and student loans. Think of how the, 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 grand, the grand crop of, of debt our society likes to throw at people. And they had decided that they were going to dig themselves out of debt. And one of the big problems they had was Christmas. 
and birthdays. Their family just went all out on all these things. So they determined, okay, we can't afford, you know, $3,000 in presents when we are up to our eyeballs in debt. So they kind of pronounced to the family, hey, we want your support on this. We want to, we want to really trim back what we're going to do on Christmas and kind of help us not get into more debt so we're not paying off, you know, for six months payments that we can't really afford. Family re- revolted. I mean, the family was just like irate and they had to really rebuff the family and just become kind of ostracized by their family because they were kind of pulling back on this. So if the people who love you the most are kind of resistant sometimes to your guardrails, guess what? Society at large is no more help. Let me, let me tell you what our society likes to throw up instead of guardrails. They like to throw up platitudes and kind of recommendations. Here's some you might have heard. How about this one? Drink responsibly. You ever heard that? all of the furor over the mothers against red driving, uh, drunk driving and stuff, you end up with, with people who produce alcohol putting out these ads, you need to drink responsibly. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound helpful? I mean, unless you are a thinking person, right? Because what does this even mean? I mean, does it mean what the guy on the screen thinks it means? Where's the guardrail? Where is the firm guideline? At some point, if you're drinking, you can cross the line from being responsible to irresponsible and not even kind of really know it, right? So I'm not sure this suggestion actually helps responsible drinkers know when they are being irresponsible. It's a great platitude, great guideline, but it's not a guardrail. How about this one? Here's what culture loves to tell our teens about sex. You should just wait until you're ready. Wait until you're ready. You can see that on practically every TV show. (laughs) Culture loved Beyonce's song, Single Lady, because if you like it, you should have put a ring on it, right? But culture doesn't like the guardrail of reserving sex for marriage. No, no, so it's wait until you're ready. I have no idea who came up with this. My theory is maybe a woman came up with it. I don't know. Not a knock on ladies. Maybe women can benefit from that. Wait until you're ready. But but here's why I think it wasn't a guy. Because if you were to say to a teenage boy, wait until you're ready, he would look at you like you had six eyes. And he would tell you, I was born ready. (laughs) Right? So maybe wait until you're ready is better than just have sex with anybody, anywhere, anytime. Okay, but I'm I'm not saying it's a very good guardrail. It's a kind of a painted line. Easy to cross over. And painted lines won't keep you out of ditches. Or how about this one? You just need to listen to your heart. What's your your heart tell you to say? I happen to think personally that this is the absolute worst advice you can ever give anybody. Because if you've been in your Bible at all, you know this. Your heart is an imbecile, right? According to God. I'm not saying your heart is, I'm saying God says your heart is an imbecile. My heart is an imbecile, basically. Again, in our culture, there's resistance to guardrails. I get it. No one wants to be told no, right? I don't, I don't like to be told no. You, you don't like to be told no. So culture disses the idea of guardrails. And you're not going to be the most popular person in your family or in your workplace if you establish guardrails. So, so here's kind of where it gets weird, though. Culture doesn't like guardrails, but culture will turn around and shame you and humiliate you 
and mock you and diss you when you end up in a ditch. In a ditch financially, in a ditch morally, in a ditch in your marriage. And to kind of show you what I'm talking about, let me just kind of rip one from the headlines to borrow the, you know, TV shows. For years, this was called the Billy Graham rule. Since the 60s, Billy Graham had a rule. And the rule was that he would not ride alone in a car with a woman, not his wife. He would not have a meal alone with a woman, not his wife. He would not uh, meet alone behind a, in a, have a meeting with a woman behind closed doors, right? So more recently, actually, it became the Mike Pence rule, right? You might have remembered this last year, 2017, because people found out that our vice president actually followed this rule. If he would go to a party where there was drinking, he wouldn't actually go there unless his wife was present. Kind of keep an eye on him, right? Uh, and when people heard about this, they just went berserk. You might remember this. Now, in fairness, there are people out there who have applied this rule in ways that actually harm women in helping them rise through the ranks of a business, whether it's corporate or nonprofit. But you gals have probably noticed, haven't you, that men who don't apply this rule have other ways of harming you, right? I, I could be wrong. I might be wrong. You can check me on this. Check the facts because we're into false facts around here, right? So facts checking. But I'm pretty sure that Billy Graham and Mike Pence had nothing to do with the rise of the Me Too movement. I'm, I could be wrong. Send me an email. Catch me after, after church. The truth is that lots of married men, lots of married women have applied this Billy Graham rule for years. But when people found out that Mike Pence applied it, the furor erupted. Now, prompted by this controversy over this rule and how he applied it, the Harvard Business Review last year in, I think it was May uh, 2017, per, per published an article. I think I have a copy here. Yeah, if you want to see it, it's right there. Here it is. I'll put it on the stage. You can come and look, make sure I'm quoting it correctly. Um, the article says this. Men shouldn't refuse to be alone with female colleagues. Stupid guardrail, Mr. Pence. You should not refuse to be alone with female colleagues. And they just put it right out there. This is a guardrail. We hate it. And the authors pointed out that the reason it's bad is that it hurts women in the workplace. It minimizes their importance, reduces their ability to move up in the corporate structure. And the article actually makes some really good points that need to be listened to. But the authors also recognized that there must be some pretty good reasons why seemingly logical, seemingly rational people actually follow this rule. And they conclude that, you know, hey, when you think about it, look at what's going on, there actually are things going on in the workplace between men and women that are not good, that are not healthy. When married men and women travel together, things can happen. When married men and women go out and drink with other people's spouses, things can happen. So the authors actually conclude that, you know, the workplace is a very fertile ground for some things to happen between people where things should not be happening. So they conclude that this evidence that they've got really does demand some action. We really got to take some action to fix this. But action like painted lines, not like guardrails. So at the end of the article... <laughs> I found this laughable. But at the end of the article, the authors make some suggestions. And I'm going to actually put the direct quotes from the article on the screen. The first suggestion was this. So if, you got, if you're a male boss or whatever, and you've got, you got all these women here around running around, uh, uh, what do you, what's, what's an evolved male leader to do? 
given the fact that the workplace can be a, a horrifically bad environment. Here's what they say. And they say, I love this, in the simplest terms, now we can't make this any simpler. Any, any, any daffy person can understand this. Simplest terms possible, two-year-old can understand this. In the simplest terms, become what we call a thoughtful caveman. So, men in the workplace, you're going to meet up with, you're going to travel with, you're going to eat with, you're going to drink with attractive women. And by attractive, what I mean by that is that someone that you think conceivably might ever be possibly interested in you, it has no idea, it makes no difference what they look like. If you think they might be interested, you're going to have, you're going to have some contact with them. So to avoid the possibility of some bad things happening, here's, here it is. In the simplest terms, I mean, you can understand this. You're a guy, even, even if you're a dumb guy. Just become a thoughtful caveman. So I'm going to count to five and let you cogitate on that. Let me hazard a guess. None of you guys have any idea what you're supposed to do with that. I don't have any idea what you're supposed to do with that. And I'm not sure the authors have any idea what to do with this because they actually make an additional recommendation. Kind of like, okay, if you didn't get that one, here's what they say. Healthy, mature, self-aware men understand and accept, I'm with them so far, their distinctly male neural architecture. I have no idea what that means either. So if this stuff on the screen is supposed to help us, Help us in the workplace. Help us create some good boundaries. I got no idea how. But, but here's the real problem. Let's just assume this is true. I mean, it might be, I guess, right? So I'm going to ask the ladies here. How many healthy, mature, self-aware men are there? Some of you would say... You've never even met one. You're not sure they even exist. And you would say that if someone actually happens to stumble across one, like in the triple canopy forest, some Amazon or whatever, you should capture that sucker and bring him in so we can study that guy, right? So let me say this. These guys, healthy, mature, self-aware men, maybe they don't need guardrails. And maybe you don't need guardrails around them. But the other 99.9999% of us do. And ladies, it's the other 99 plus percent. That's the reason you need guardrails too. Now, I do think HBR, uh, Harvard Business Review, mischaracterized the rule, right? First of all, uh, I think that the rule has been misapplied. I do think it's been misapplied in some circumstances to thwart women from getting ahead. We're going to come back to that in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, right? But for, the, for right now, just let's focus on why I actually brought this whole thing up. If you opt for guardrails in your personal life, you're probably not going to be celebrated by our culture. But, but I do promise you this. You will end up with fewer regrets. Now, this whole thing is not a new concept. Not an original idea, actually. The concept of guardrails has been around for a long time. In fact, the Hebrew Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament, talks about guardrails. The New Testament does too. And today, I just want to take you quickly to a passage out of the book of uh, Ephesians, which the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he helped establish back in the day. And uh, Paul has just told the Christians there in this book, 
up to chapter 5, that there are some things that they should do and things that they should not do to avoid harming themselves or other people. And then he provides some general guidance on how to avoid going off into the ditch on the right side of the road or across the median strip on the left side or over a mountain or a bridge, right? How to do, do better things in, in terms of relationships and finances and morality and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to walk you through these four verses pretty quick in the time we have left. Here's what he says starting in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now this was written to Christians, right? And uh, it's great advice for Christians, right? But it's, I think it's pretty darn good advice for anybody. So it says this, be very careful then how you live. That little Greek word translated live here actually literally means walk. So how to think about what Paul's getting at here is this. If you have a large dog and a small yard, you get what Paul is talking about here. Because if you are out in your yard where your large dog has been, you will be very careful where you walk, lest you step in something you don't want to step in. That's the idea behind what Paul's saying. Saying, look, you got to look around. You got to check out what's happening around you. You cannot be just a dummy just walking around in anything, right? You got to set up some guardrails. You got to be watching where you step. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now, if you read the scripture, you find out that wisdom is kind of the, is kind of the decision-making template, right? We're told to walk wisely. And, and wisdom is more than just simply right and wrong, right? Because sometimes you get into a situation and you're not exactly sure what's right or what's wrong. But if you ask yourself this question, what is the wise thing to do? Suddenly, clarity ensues. The wisdom question brings clarity. So in light of your past experiences, in light of your current circumstances, and in light of your future hopes and dreams, what would be the wise thing to do at this moment? What is the wise thing considering my past, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams? And then Paul says this, making the most of every opportunity. Literally, this says redeeming the, t- the time. In other words, as you live your life, time is a limited resource. So time might actually be your most valuable commodity because there is a limited amount of it. And you don't really know how much of it you have. You might know how much is in your checking account, but you do not know how much time you have. So we are to be very, very careful with it. And don't we wish some of us, that we could go back and redeem the time, buy back the time that we've wasted, go back in and redo that freshman year of college, that first year of marriage. Paul says, hey guys, you already know what happens when you're not careful with your time. Just look at your past. There are things you've done that you wish you could undo. So as you live, don't live as unwise people, but as wise. Keep aware of how fast time flies and every time, every minute is valuable. Well, why, Paul? He said, and he tells us, he, he's, he's not leaving us in the dark. He says, because the days you live in are evil. Now, this is written over 2,000 years ago. He's telling me, look, you're living in dangerous time. You can't just walk around not paying attention to what's going on around you. 
You got to see where the, where the wind is blowing. You got to see what's happening out there. The days are evil. Culture's not working for you. It's working against you. You can't afford to be careless. Isn't this amazing how relevant this is in our day? Let's just talk defensive driving classes. What do you do in a defensive driving class? You learn to pay attention, don't you? Not just to what you're doing in your cab, right, in your, in your little cubicle in the car, but what everybody else is doing all around you. And this is Paul's point. Be careful how you live. Because you live in dangerous time. You live in a dangerous environment. Be careful how you live because if you're not careful, you're going to end up in a place you don't want to be ending up in. What did your parents teach you when, you were, when they were teaching you to drive? Yeah, you got to look out for the other guy. You got to watch out for the other drivers. You have to anticipate what they're going to do. You have to expect them to do the incredibly dumb thing, to pull in front of you, to pull out in front of you, to run the stoplight. You got to be taking all that into account, not just whether the light's green. Hey, if there's a semi-truck barreling down on you that's not looking like it's going to stop, is it wise to wait and see if it does before you pull out just because you got a green light? Yeah, yeah. You learn that the hard way or you die, right? This is Paul's point. You live in an environment, a culture, where it's not enough to simply pay attention to what you're doing. You live here. You got to pay attention to what other people are doing, what other people are asking of you or requiring of you or demanding of you or inviting you to, what other people are offering to you. Paul goes on, therefore, do not be foolish. Talk about being wise, don't be foolish. Don't approach life as if your past hasn't impacted where you're sitting right now. And don't be so foolish as to think that your present circumstances and the decisions you're making right now don't combine with your past to determine what your future is going to be. Then he says something that's a little bit hard to get our arms around. He says this, but understand, understand what the will of the Lord is. The word understand there is in the imperative tense in Greek translation. This is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. If you're a Christian, it is a command. Okay, you guys, understand. And they're probably going like some of us are going, okay, I want to understand. I really do, really want to get it. But I'm trying. I just don't understand that I get it. Okay, so Paul, here's what he's trying to say. You've got the wise choice and the foolish choice. Understand which of those the Lord wants for you. And look, dummies, you're no dummies. You know what's wise. So stop being foolish. You know where culture says where you live. And you know what the culture says where you live is not what God says. So be honest about this. Face up to what you know is the right thing to do. The Lord does not want you running your life into a ditch. You know where you're dancing on the line. You know where you're flirting with disaster. You've had a couple of close calls already. Haven't been caught yet, but you're darn close. Come on, be honest. You know, because what happens is that one thing leads to another. One thing leads to another. Then Paul gives us a one thing leads to another illustration. By the way, this is just bizarre. <laughs> I did not know this. Used to have pictures of the Easter Bunny, and then a year later, just child psychology. Okay, come on. The Bible verses we're going to look at are, are pretty powerful. They're, they're misunderstood a lot, so I'm glad we're going to dig into them today. But look, here's, here's Paul's point. If you have guardrails, if you have guardrails, if you're thinking about what you're doing, if you are wise, if you're pondering what the Lord wants, 
you know, it's going to keep you from doing something that leads to something else. Guardrails will prevent us from one thing leading to another. And Paul says, look, wise people get this. So Paul says, let me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In being careful how you live, in being careful where you step, in being walking in wisdom, not being foolish. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to. That's his point. One thing leads to another thing. Guardrails can help us keep from one thing leading to another thing that we don't want. Because one thing leads to another. When you see this text on the screen, you fill in the blank. Do not be drunk, which leads to. Think about anything you want to think about. What comes to mind? Anybody come to mind? Anything come to mind? Do, do you know someone that you know probably wishes that for them, don't get drunk they wish they'd have been a guardrail because of what it led to. In fact, chances are, I bet there's somebody in this room whose life would have been completely different if mom or dad had stayed sober. So think about it. Their life would have been different, but so would yours. So Paul says, look, the problem with getting plastered is what it leads to. Drunk is the guardrail. Now for some people, it's the goal, right? I was in a fraternity in college, Thursday night. The night everybody heads out and gets plastered. I had a guy who had been in, in our fraternity. He'd been in college eight years. Literally, the whites of his eyes were yellow. He had drunk so much. And we chuckle, don't we? Right up, the, right up to the point where the guy crosses the median strip. Then it's not so funny. Right up until the point where the college student realizes everybody else can stop drinking, but he can't. And all of a sudden, what was a pastime has become an addiction with the potential to wreck and ruin his life. So where does wisdom tell me the guardrail should be placed? On this issue or any other issue? I mean, given my past... Given my present circumstances, given my hopes and dreams, where I want to end up in the future, where would it be wise to place that guardrail? And listen, culture will mock you and laugh at your guardrails. And will be the first one in line to dish you when your drinking problem leads to a string of DUIs and costs you your job, or you're involved in a hit and run, or worse. So how does Paul fill the blank in? He goes, don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. My guess is probably you have not used that term in the last week, last year, um, last decade, right? It's not a word we use a lot. But it's primarily used in terms of sexual indulgence as a result of lack of self-control. But it's not just sexual indulgence. It's any kind of indulgence that is a result of the loss of self-control. So here we are, again, on the value of guardrails. Because guardrails can safeguard us from handing over control of our lives to something or someone that actually shouldn't have it. Guardrails can safeguard you, your spouse, your kids, right? People you work with. It can safeguard you from handing over control of your life to something or someone else. It's ensuring that guard, the guardrails can, that your future isn't being mastered by something that should not have that control over you. Guys, you, you, you know what that feels like. You experience it, don't you? Whenever she has the remote control. Don't you? The guy looks calm, right? 
All he's thinking about is how do I get that back from her? <laughs> That's what he's thinking. Paul says this, instead, instead of being controlled by something that should not have that control over you, instead of that, and look, even if you're not a Jesus follower, I think everything we've talked about so far is pretty much common sense. You know, you have some regrets because of some decisions you've made. Maybe the lack of guardrails have contributed to those. You get it, the guardrails could have helped prevent them. So you're with me so far. But right here, Paul trying to change his gears because he's writing to Christians. So he kind of capitalizes on the fact he's a Christian too. And for this one verse, he flips into his faith in Christ. He leverages the fact that he believes that Jesus Christ entered this world as God's son to die for the sins of the world. And he believes that, he believes that Jesus is the person he says he claimed to be, God, and that he actually rose from the dead. And it is something spectacular, right? So here's what he says. Instead of giving control over to something that should not have it, maybe the wise thing is to give over control to something that should. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, here's what it teaches. It teaches the people who have faith in Christ that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. Literally, take up residence in them. Paul said, hey, instead of giving control of your life over to anyone else, whether it's alcohol, whether it's work, whether it's finances, whether it's greed, whether it's hobbies, whether it's a person, whether it's an affair, instead of giving over control to anyone else, maybe the wise thing is to submit your life to the nudging, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So if you are a Jesus follower here today, you experience this a lot in your conscience, Pretty much everybody has a conscience, unless you're a sociopath, and my guess is sociopaths probably aren't showing up in church on Sundays. But when you become a Christian, isn't it true that you experienced a fine-tuned conscience? It kind of gave you a whole new way of thinking, a whole new different way of living, that as you open your Bible, all of a sudden things that never made sense to you begin to make sense to you? Because the Holy Spirit's, one of his jobs is to make the, Holy, is to make the word of God come alive to you make sense to you. And, and, he, and he'll use it to tap into your conscience. He doesn't, he doesn't usually yell or scream. That's not been my experience. Maybe you're a little bit deaf, so he screams at you, but I don't think that's the case. Right? Most of the time, it's kind of a gentle nudge. You see the phone ring, and you see who it's from, and you're about to pick it up and answer it, and all of a sudden, you get a little nudge. No, 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 no. I don't think it's a good idea. You're about to take a left instead of a right. And you get that nudge. No, 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 no. I think, you should, I think we just keep on going straight. He can be more direct. He can plant a thought. Hey, why don't we stop in there and encourage that person? Why don't you apologize for that thing you just did? Why don't we do this with that bonus check you just got? Hey, let's go hang out with the kids. And you'll find that when he's nudging, he also brings the oomph or the power to be able to do whatever it is he's pushing you to do. Now, that's the Holy Spirit, right? He's here with us to help us and lead us. And I guarantee you, he's going to encourage you to set up some guardrails. So, to recap, here's what Paul says. Be very careful, then, how you live, where you walk, where you go, what you do, where you step. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, every minute counts. Why? Because the days are evil. Culture is not working for you. It's working overtime against you. Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't live as if your past and your present and your future life aren't connected. It all 
comes, one thing leads to another. This says, understand what the will of the Lord is for you. So what we are going to do in the next four weeks is come back to this kind of over and over. So here's the deal. I don't know of anybody that purposefully plans to wreck their life. Any more than you get in a car and purpose to wreck your car, right? Nobody plans to wreck their careers. Nobody plans to wreck their marriages. Nobody plans to wreck their finances. Nobody plans to wreck their health. But here's the reality. Because we don't actively plan not to wreck those things, you and I just tend to wreck them. So we need to plan not to wreck them. And guardrails is your plan not to wreck them. Guardrails is how you set yourself up to walk wisely, to step carefully. There's a sense that guardrails is the, is the moral equivalent of defensive driving. It's defensive living. And you know you need them, right? Because you live in evil times. Look, look, I know you think you're going to be careful. But guardrails is how you be careful. And there's one added benefit. We'll close with this. Remember we mentioned guardrails are there to protect and direct. You'll find even if you're new to faith in Christ, even if you're not even sure you embrace faith in Christ, you're going to discover it's a far easier to discern God's will for your life if you have guardrails than if you don't have them. And the reason is this. Because stepping away from what can harm you that you know will harm you is actually a step toward the one who actually loves you. At the end of the day, this whole discussion is about becoming not just better people. At the end of the day, what this series is going to push us to is about becoming more surrendered people. Surrendered to the God who actually loves you and made you and sent his son to die for your sin and to pay for mine, right? And to live in such a way that God gets glory, which is fancy-dancy word for, you know, when people see us live, they speak well of the Father that we have in heaven. So this is about you. It is about me. But it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. It's about our relationship with our Father. So final question, and you're out of here. Where do you need to start? What is it that you need to face up to? Where's the places you don't have a guardrail are? If it is, it's in the middle of the ditch. And you keep bumping into the ditch. Where are you flirting with disaster? And would you be willing over the next four weeks to allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to you about where the guardrails need to be for you? What would be the wise thing? Let me pray.